You're listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at Film at Lincoln Center. Today, we're sharing a conversation following a special screening of The Assistant with writer-director Kitty Green. The film, which opens in theaters this week, debuted at the Telluride Film Festival, where I saw it last fall. It's the story of Jane, played by Julia Garner. She plays a recent college graduate who's an aspiring film producer, and she's landed a dream job as an assistant to a powerful entertainment mogul. While it's not exactly based on the story of Harvey Weinstein, Kitty Green spent a lot of time researching and talking with women who've worked in entertainment over recent years and have faced some of the systemic abuse that has been brought to light by the recent case against Harvey Weinstein. Filmmaker Kitty Green discussed this research and more in the conversation here at Film at Lincoln Center. Let's go now to that discussion. I understand uh, you are busy recently. You've been in Sundance very recently. Yeah. Uh, the film's premiere. And yes, we just came back on yes. Monday. We flew back and we had a bunch of screenings and I'm kind of half alive, so <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Thank you. We'll, we'll keep it low-key. It's late. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, but jumping right in, I, uh, I found this to be a very intimate film in the sense that it's about a workplace culture, uh, specifically within the industry in which the film itself was made, because the film itself was a, uh, an independent film uh, made within the filmmaking industry, and it's a film about the specific power dynamics within that industry. And I wonder how you... Uh, approached sort of the unique challenge of that sort of um, sort of reflexive mm. uh, storytelling. I mean, yeah, we. I mean, I was. I was actually beginning. I was working on a project about consent and power mm. in colleges on college campuses. But when the Weinstein story broke, and I kind of shifted focus and started chatting to my friends who worked companies that companies particularly and Miramax and some other companies in New York and LA and London and Australia um, and that sort of I started interviewing kind of women I was more inter I was interested in how the media was covering the Me Too coverage was all about the predators the men at the top but not about the kind of broader systemic problems that I saw that was to do with how do we get more women into the industry and things like that. So I kind of started interviewing kind of lowest position, the lowest power, the people with the least power at those organizations about their experiences, particularly women. And that, um, yeah, and kind of the project was born from there. But it was something that I don't think, and I think Scott, you can speak to this, the film industry was that excited about right. investing in um, because of the subject matter, but. Um, yeah, no, not at all. It was, it was a very hard film to get financed um, and a, a lot of companies it would like advance up you know up the ladder and then like one person at the top would be like no you know but I think five or six months before this film was greenlit uh, James Seamus and I were high-fiving each other because a company had come in and they were all gonna do it and then 24 hours later like one person one key person was like no we can't we can't really touch this when, when was this in terms of uh, well, we shot the film a year ago yeah, February, yeah. February, February, March, February, yeah. February, March of uh, of uh, nineteen. Mm -hmm. In eighteen days, so it was yeah. a very quick shoot. And these the conversations around these power dynamics are very much still unfolding um, mm. in Hollywood and in the New York film community. And um, was that? Did you find that working on this film stirred up conversations within that broader conversation, or was there more of sort of a reluctance to engage? I don't know. People were. I don't know. I mean, people have seemed... 
We sort of started doing chatting to people right after all the NDAs were lifted and everything was sort of everyone, everything, everyone was everywhere. So we did get a lot of people kind of interested in speaking about the subject. I mean, it's very uncomfortable subject to speak about so I think it was always it's always going to be difficult but um yeah and that's where it yeah I mean Kitty interviewed um 100 or so uh uh, people who worked at different companies for this film and I think once the the word got out that we were making this film there were people who were eager to talk to you who wanted to share their stories in a sense it's a it's a of a piece with the the exposés that come out like in the New Yorker and sort of essayistic form but it by Putting it in a fictional register, it uh, it gives it a different um, sort of way of reaching audiences. Um, as somebody who came from documentary filmmaking, uh, was that a conscious choice that you had to make at a certain point to make instead of making a documentary on this subject, making a fiction narrative film? Yeah, part of it came from I was really frustrated as a fem- as a female filmmaker in the industry for ten years that people weren't really taking me seriously and would assume that I was not in control and would say to me, "Oh, who gives you your ideas? Is it James or Scott, my two producers?" And I was like, "Gives me my idea? Like you would never ask a male filmmaker that." So I was getting a lot of that, and every time I would tell someone that story, they would go, "Oh, you know, just ignore it." And I'm like, "No, but it really kind of strips me of my self confidence." I, I like I was feeling very low at one point after a lot of kind of weird like little insinuations like that that I probably didn't wasn't in creative creatively in control of what I was doing so I guess it kind of came it was born a little bit out of my frustration of that going I I think if I interviewed people and they explained oh the boys did this or you know I had to take the chicken sandwich back it would just sound like a bunch of women complaining but if I could put you squarely in her shoes and get you to kind of emotionally identify with her and her her being in her position and being forced to be in it in through all of the mundanity for you know the whole day 24 hours of her life I felt like like that would have more of an impact, I was hoping, than what a documentary could do. I felt like we could get to another kind of deeper emotional truth that way. And how uh, the character of Jane, uh, I, I'm interested in the fact that you, instead of um, focusing on the young woman who's sort of the the object of this big executive's attentions and sort of the, the at the center of whatever this. Um, power dynamic is we are following somebody who's sort of watching who's sort of seeing it happen and is powerless to intervene and is powerless to affect change uh, even though she recognizes that it's troubling and uh, a problem and how what where did that decision come from sort of to, to position us uh, in the perspective of somebody watching but powerless Whenever I said I was making a film about an assistant to an predatory boss, people would go, "Oh, the enablers." And I was—I had spoken to a lot of people, and I was thinking, I thought it was more complex than that. I mean, if you're in her shoes and you have that, like, you have, don't have any power at all. Plus, you don't have all the facts. You have the dots, but you can't join the dots. It's like, what was she supposed to do? I feel like we—I really wanted to make sure get people to thinking like if I was in that position would I have been able to do anything like there was a reason that this system continued on the way it did and hurt and sidelined so many people for so long is because there were so many people that were powerless to stop it um and so that kind of was part of the exploration I mean yeah and um how did you uh, go about casting because I think the especially the, the character of Jane the the actress who plays her um does a great job of sort of conveying that Position, but also the people, the people around her. Everyone is is has a different role to play in this sort of ecosystem. And how did you, 
approach that? I mean, Julia Garner is incredible. I'd seen her in The Americans, I think, and I'm in Ozark. And I had thought, she, I just immediately when I saw her in The Americans, I'm like, there's something about that kid. She has like a really striking look. And we were looking for someone who was kind of infinitely watchable. Because, I mean, a lot of the film is just her making coffee or, you know. And so she needed to have that face that you could just kind of cling on to. Um, so I, yeah, I, I liked her. I, straight away, the casting agent recommended her. We sat down with her and I explained what I was trying to do. And she seemed to get it, got the script, understood the character. And the two of us had a month of pre-production and we kind of discussed, the, the character wasn't much in the script, it just said Jane and it had an age, and that was it. And so we really kind of, the two of us figured out who she was, what our motivations were, gave her a bit of a backstory. And we actually interviewed assistants together who had similar jobs and looked at their photos and kind of got a sense of who the character was through that. But she was phenomenal, and she's just been such a delight from day one. She's such a lovely human being, which makes a big difference on the set like that. She also, I went to her agent's office, her manager's office, and kind of observed the assistants there. I mean, she makes a joke at her interviews about what a lousy assistant she would be. Um, but she got it down. She studied the intonation, how people answer the phone, the kind of poise, the kind of warm but slightly distant tone at the same time. Uh, I know that this film is still sort of early in its reception uh, because it's just come out, but what has the reception been? like uh, for the people who've seen the finished film? We're still sort of screening it, but I get a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of men are very uncomfortable and very, and I feel like discomfort maybe is a good thing and maybe that will, like change doesn't come about without a little discomfort. Um, and we get a lot of women who come up to me and just a lot of people kind of saying they feel seen by it. Like I had a woman who worked at a yacht company and she was saying, that's me. And that was kind of incredible that it is kind of transferable to any workplace. That was kind of our intention in focusing on the ordinary as opposed to the extraordinary. But yeah, it was really, uh, it's been kind of a lovely reception, especially with a lot of women who kind of grab on to, I made a lot of movies. I've never had one where people grab onto you and want to like stand near you and hold on to you and tell you stories. So that's been kind of amazing. Also, been people um, picking up on kind of the the economic dynamics of the film. About it's a movie about a young person entering the workplace at this particular moment of American history with the the pressures and stresses and the kind of maybe lack of clear sort of upward mobility for a lot of people. So, yeah, that sort of gets at. Um, I'll open it up to the audience in just a moment. But I am especially uh, I was especially captivated by this sort of pivotal scene in the middle with Matthew McFadden as the, the HR representative, or, or um, it's never quite explained uh, how much power he has, but clearly he is uh, hes a, a kind of fixer. Like he's in this position in order to manage problems before they get too big. And how did you craft that scene? What sort of, um, what was the exact dynamic that you wanted to uh, frame in that scene because it's it's a it's a very powerful and riveting uh, sort of sequence, but I'm interested. In that. Yeah, there's a lot going on. I mean, we, I spoke to a lot of people who had gone to HR and only to realize that HR is not there to protect them, but to protect the company. So that was clearly like goal number one when we were writing it. We were also looking at kind of gaslighting and the idea that you can walk in and he can kind of make you doubt your positions and kind of poke holes in your argument to the point where 
you think you're judging the young girl that's come into the office as opposed to being concerned for her. So all of that, being able to play around with those kind of power dynamics, even between Julia and the girl, the young woman herself, um, was kind of important. I also wanted to make sure he had a kind of coherent. Uh, there was one kind of draft. You initially write it; it's very easy to write it and get make him get angry and like swear and be nasty. But it feels like even more insidious if he plays it very cool. He's very calm, collected, and just kind of makes sense, you know? So that was ended up being kind of the final draft. Um, but yeah, the two of them, it's a 12-page scene, and the two of them were so amazing and just did it over and over again without a break, and it almost was like some kind of one-act play. It was kind of incredible to watch, and I was very... I am come from documentary, so watching two actors like that go at a scene like that is incredible. It was really something exciting. I want to open it up in case there are questions in the audience. Uh, we have mics that can come around. Um, if you raise your hand, I'll point to you. If you if you can't say who actually which company actually ended up financing the film, could you describe the company and what made them go for this, where all the others had shied away from it? Well, it, it's actually a, a private equity financed film, so there's uh, probably six or seven different financiers. Um, you know, there's there's one central company, 3311, and our partners, uh, Jen Dana and Ross Jacobson, and their company put in financing. They're an independent company that did films like It Follows. Um, and then there are uh, two private investors. There's a great uh, New York-based company called CineReach, uh, which is, uh, does very bold, artistic, and also socially relevant films. Uh, there's a New York State tax credit. So, you know, it's not, it's not a studio finance film. Level Forward. Oh, and of course, and uh, Level Forward, which is Abigail Disney, uh, Adrian Becker, and uh, they support amazing projects as well. We also partnered with the New York Women's Foundation, and we're giving 10% of the profits to them, and they've been great allies trying to create that. So, yeah, so, spread the word. They're doing amazing things and kind of really working and creating change for workplaces and gender. And yeah, It's phenomenal what they're doing. I also have a, a first thanks for producing a very universal movie. Thanks, thanks on that. Um, I also have an economics question, but more about inside the movie. Um, this company allegedly or seemingly makes money and makes a lot of money because they send their executive flying and all, all sorts of things, limos and all these things. But what they don't spend is inside their offices, the work conditions for their employees. You know, you see it's grabby and everything looks sh shoddy and run down. So, what, what are you trying to do? And that, my experience is that not all the companies are like that. The, uh, you know, companies tend, some companies at least tend to, uh, some media companies tend to spend in, in having nice offices. After all, clients come and so on and so forth. So uh, what, what, what you as a producer were trying to, to show us in this? With that. Uh, there wasn't much to do, except that a lot of New York production companies often look like that, to be honest. And we, I mean, it's not, we kind of based it on, we had, you know, there's lots of companies in New York that are still in existence, plus there's the Weinstein Company, which is bankrupt, which has kind of had a similar feel. We kind of just, I mean, our production designers went through lots of images of that sort of thing. Also, they'd been into those offices themselves, so kind of knew what they were looking like. But it is, a, it is a company that makes a lot of money, but it, yeah, often those companies are pretty cheap when it comes to furnishing their own offices, so that wasn't far from the truth. I was intrigued by your response to the question about the response you've gotten so far, um, and I wonder if you can elaborate on the discomfort that men f uh, feel or the discomfort they reflect to you uh, feeling after viewing this film? 
Yeah, I've had a few people that are not even men, but bosses of com- of with assistants. Who I had a friend who's a filmmaker who took three weeks to get back to me, and I'd seen that they'd. W- I knew they'd watched a link. You know how you can tell on Vimeo, and so I knew that they'd seen it, and they didn't respond. And they normally are very kind of truthful in what they say to me. Like so, I was thinking, what's going on there? And I got this very apologetic email saying, "I'm sorry, I'm feeling very guilty because I have." a few assistants who do far too much for me and I'm still kind of wrestling with that. So I think that kind of response where people do start to examine their own behavior and the way they treat their employees and the way they kind of, there's a lot of people that um, they come out of the screening and want to you know, give the, the woman who's ripping tickets by her lunch. You know, it's that kind of thing, which I think is a great, if it, if it can kind of get people thinking about you know, their position. We're all, we're all kind of complicit in this system that's that's left a lot of people feeling very, well, kind of pushed a lot of people down and left people kind of hurt and sidelined. So if we can kind of have a think about that a little bit, that, that would be the, the goal come, coming out of it. So yeah, it does make a few people uncomfortable, but um, yeah, it's, I, yeah. <laughs> Not to be too Pollyannish, but have things changed? I mean, you were doing these interviews uh, after the Me Too uh, movement started, did the interview suggest that there is movement? And uh, what kind of movement is there? I think there has been some, to be honest. Like, I think we are, women are getting more opportunities than they used to get. I think the conversation has is getting, I don't know, there's been more conversations around women and women, why we don't have more women in power in the film industry. And I think that's been a good thing but it is still you do see a lot of the behaviors that are depicted here still today and so the idea is we kind of need to bust it open a little bit more still like I really think it's a system that's structured against women and towards men and if we want things to change we kind of have to rip the whole thing apart which sounds so you know crazy and but uh, you know yeah I think there is small shifts and I think the more conversations we can have around these subjects the better so that's what we're doing but there are people like the New York Women's Foundation who are kind of really creating on the ground doing things which is pretty amazing seems to do justice to your film uh, which I liked very much Um, what I'd like to know is where are the powerful women Um, and we know there were many um, without whom none of uh, what you're depicting and and what is happening in reality uh, would likely have known was going on. And where are they? They seem to be totally absent, other than denying that they knew anything. And they seem to be totally absent in terms of supporting filmmakers, for example, like you, or others who want to bring attention to this issue um, in the total picture. We don't see them, we don't hear from them, we get denials, we get I had no idea. How do you feel about that? I personally think that a very important part of why this continues to go on um, is on account of that, and I'd be very interested in hearing your views on that. Yeah, originally I wrote the screenplay and it was, I think I'd almost given the men to, the men were, had all the, the, the women weren't guil- guilty of anything. Do you know what I mean? Or weren't complicit? Yeah, and I did have a few people read the screenplay who had experience in situations like this and said to me, it's, you know, we need to give some of those lines to the women. So there is one line in that elevator where the woman says, oh, she'll get more out of this than he will. 
and that's the pr pr pretty much the most damning line in the movie, and we we gave it to a woman. Um, but it was uh, we were trying to make clear that it's not black and white. It's not like women good, men bad. I mean, everyone is kind of equally guilty in a scenario like this. Um, but yeah, it is. It's confusing. I feel like in I don't know in a situation like this, people often search for like who are the victims and who are the victimizers. And, and I think this is a very complex situation where the system's almost pushing people into a position of victimization. I'm not sure these are bad. They're not bad people. They're stuck in some kind of very dehumanizing system. So I really wanted to try and make the film without judgment and without um, putting you squarely in Jane, the lead's shoes, so that hopefully you could understand some of her choices and understand just how complicated that scenario was, especially for, you know, someone just fresh out of college, like having that weight of responsibility. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I hope that answers the question. We did what we can, but yeah. Sorry, could you, I'll just repeat that. I was asking how you're handling distribution for the film so that it gets widely seen, and I also wanted to know if you're using it um, within organizations maybe as a talking point to get people to speak more um, freely and actually orchestrate some kind of change around it. Do you want to talk about distribution? Yeah, I mean, uh, Bleecker Street is our distributor and we open uh, tomorrow in New York and LA and they booked 80, I think there's 80 cities already booked for the film. Um, but there are also other initiatives happening concurrently. So Level Forward, um, uh, one of our, our partners on the film, they have a, a program called Screen Forward that takes the film into uh, like other markets that wouldn't normally be like an opening weekend market. And then we have uh, screenings for uh, activist groups, uh, YEA, which is a um, sort of uh, workplace Hollywood activist group, is doing a special screening of this film. We have a screening at, like entirely for assistance um, uh, that's happening tomorrow night. Yeah, the LA premiere is an assistant-only oh, yeah. premiere. So no one, so. you have to be an assistant to attend <laughs> yeah, the premiere exactly. in LA. Exactly, I'm proud of that. Um, there are screenings like this, but there are also, um, uh, there will be more grassroots screenings and screenings with uh, affinity groups um, around issues of economic justice uh, and other topics addressed in the film. So the, it's, the film's coming out quickly. You know, the, it was, uh, we premiered it at Telluride in the fall. We got picked up. And so we, um, I think we've been, and, and Bleecker Street has been really responsive to exploring these other areas while it's also coming out in conventional theaters. With regard to the final scene in the film, is the visual narrative telling us that she picks up her muffin, leaving her cell phone behind, and walking out? The interesting thing about the cell phone is we didn't notice that it's, you know she leaves the cell phone behind? <laughs> it's actually just a continuity mistake. Um, because it's cut between two shots. I, that was not, and I, 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 like one in every maybe 500 people <laughs> notices it. So that's you. Um, I always assume that, that she put it in her pocket. In the yeah, the, put it in her pocket maybe while she, I don't know. It's a, yeah, it's a, it isn't, that wasn't an, an, an artful choice. I, I <laughs> thought she had left, um, We made this film in 18 behind. days and we made that shot, that final scene in the, on the final night and it was, we had, the sun was coming out, you know, like it's always that kind of story, unfortunately. Well, I'm sorry that that's all the time we have. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you all. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. 
You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education curriculum and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.